Welcome to episode 77 of Africa Past and Present, our podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alleggi. And I'm Peter Lim, and our very special guest today is Barry Gilder, author of Songs and Secrets, South Africa from Liberation to Governance, published by Columbia University Press, Hearst in London, and Jakarta in South Africa in 2012. Born in South Africa, he went into exile from apartheid South Africa in 1976. He sang struggle songs and served in the ANC and MK and Konto Wisiswi in intelligence structures. After his return to South Africa in 1991, he served as deputy head of the South African Secret Service. In 2010, he co-founded the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection, a progressive policy think tank where he remains a fellow and serves on the advisory board of a new national school of government in South Africa. He is currently on a speaking tour by Oxford University Press, distributor of the book, and will speak at the African Studies Association. Welcome, Barry Gilder. Thank you. Uh, perhaps we could start off with a little background of how you came to be involved in resistance anti-apartheid politics. Well, I was uh, active politically as a student, uh, initially at Wits University in Johannesburg, and then I served on the National Executive Committee of the National Union of South African Students, um, which was very active in opposing apartheid, and the generation that I served with was, was particularly radical, uh, moving away from the more liberal traditions uh, of the white student movement in South Africa to, to more a tradition of looking more closely at the economic and other factors which underlay the system of apartheid. And there was a pipeline to Botswana, and although you may not have gone along the underground pipeline, you certainly went that a ways? Yeah, I left the country via Botswana, that's correct, yeah. And from thence you went to, you went further north? I did, uh, many places further north. Um, I spent a few months in, in Geneva, actually, uh, doing some research on the student movement and then moved to London. And then in 1979, I joined the ANC's armed wing, Umkonto I went for training with them in Angola, was sent from there to do training in Moscow, and then spent about six years in the ANC underground structures in Botswana, neighboring South Africa, a year and a bit in Zimbabwe before I finally went home. 1991. In your book, Barry, there are a couple of fantastic photographs. One of them has you with a caption, Johannesburg folk singer, on a stool with a guitar in hand, long hair, beard. There's a tent behind you, several people listening, and you're at the Witz campus in Joburg, and this is in the midst of a student protest in August of 1975. And then below it, there's another photograph of you with shorter hair, looking very much like a, a Che Guevara <laughs> youngster with a, a, an AK-47 slung over your shoulder with uh, various comrades in Luanda about uh, 1980 or so. Can you tell us about how Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Victor Jara influenced this, this evolution in you from someone who fought with a pick of a guitar uh, and then put down that guitar and picked up an AK-47. What's the link between political consciousness, music, and struggle? 
you know, for people of my generation, I'm a child of the 60s, and a lot of white South Africans of my generation were very much influenced by the, the counterculture of the 60s, by the politics of the 60s of Europe and, and North America, child of Woodstock. We listened to Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and many others uh, of that ilk. Uh, and I guess a lot of the initial politics, at least the emotional politics, came out of, of that uh, era. Victor Hara, who you mentioned, was a Chilean folk singer and activist who was killed during the, the coup in 1973. And I remember fairly early on in my uh, political consciousness reading a, a quote of his which said something like, if the guitar is to be a weapon in the revolution, the person behind it must be a genuine revolutionary. And I just felt that you know, singing about the struggle was, was not enough, that, that my music, my art, my culture would come out of participation, and I felt that I, you know, I had no right to sit aside and let others do the fighting. And that's what led me into picking up the MK. I didn't quite drop the guitar. I had the guitar in one hand, the AK in the other, um, for a while. <laughs> so what was it like to play music in the camps in Angola while you were uh, training militarily for the struggle? It was fantastic. Uh, the, the ANC uh, and had a very vibrant cultural life, and South Africans are, are very talented generally in music, in dance, in theater, in poetry, and, and other forms of art. And the year I was in the camps was 1979, which was the centenary of the Battle of Isantlana, in which a Zulu force uh, defeated a British expeditionary force. So there was a lot of cultural activities that year, and we actually formed a little music group called Spearhead, about five or six of us, and we were very popular in the camps. We were kind of the, the pop stars of the camps. And it was a great life, great experience, and you know, we used to get time off after heavy days of training to go and practice and, and compose new songs and practice our songs, and every we had a makeshift stage with makeshift spotlights by Petri operated or generator operated spotlights. Uh, it was a real little outdoor theater we had in the camps there. And since today we're making history, recording the first podcast in our new studio in the history department at Michigan State, we also would love it if uh, you could play a song for our listeners and make history in a different way to be the first guest on the podcast to actually play music live. Well, from the bushes of Angola to the studios of MSU, I think that's a transition I can try and work on. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. Okay, the song I'm going to sing under this uh, inordinate pressure from, from you guys is called the Matola song, and it, it's a song that I wrote for a very good friend of mine uh, who became my friend in the camp in Angola. Uh, I knew him as Mangoba, which means conqueror. Um, his real name, which I only learned much later, is Nduduzi uh, Guma, who was uh, an attorney in Durban, involved in ANC underground in Durban, had to leave the country. And he was killed in 1981, January 1981, in an apartheid army uh, attack on, uh, on an ANC house in, in Mozambique, Matola outside Maputo in Mozambique. Uh, and I only discovered uh, about his death when I came back from, from Moscow in, in 1981. So the song was, was written for him. You will what? Thanks for the book as well. Mm -hmm. 
I just heard of your battle, my friend. And that for you, the war has come to an end. You hardly had time to cock your gun. Somebody suddenly switched off the sun But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand Your picture was flashed all over the world Your flesh in shreds, your limbs grotesquely curled But your face was so dark I could not tell What did you see the moment you fell? But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand to joke in our free time in the sun about which one of us would get to be the first one to see the enemy crumble in our sights To feel that unspeakable joy of the people's might But I'm still alive Curse the war, I'm still alive Holding your cock gun in my hand You heard my song, I know you would grin. Saying, What kind of a dirge is this that you sing? Why don't you sing something about victory? Of how my small death might help it to be For I'm still alive Don't curse the war, I'm still alive Bearing that cock gun in your hand Yes, I'm still alive, don't you curse the war, I'm 
still alive Bearing that cop gun in your hand Beautiful rendition of Matola by Barry Gilder. Thank you. It's really quite fascinating, this whole cultural dimension of exile. Um, the nuts and bolts of survival. And in the book you talk about uh, mosquito-infested swamps in Angola, and sleeping with your boots on, with a rifle by your side, your MK rifle by your side, and, and all kinds of small everyday things like the joy of the arrival of a truck from Luanda bringing provisions. All the sorts of things, this sort of um, the history of everyday life, what it was like to survive, the resilience of people fighting this uh, very heavily armed, I might add, um, apartheid regime in the South. And perhaps here it would be opposite to contrast uh, another book that also came out last year on the ANC in Exile by Stephen Ellis. And both books deal in large part with problems of exile. And there is some crossover when both authors look at, uh, you and Stephen Ellis look at issues of corruption and power. Um, but it strikes me that one big difference between the two books is, is your focus on the cultural, uh, the, the music, uh, uh, human friendship. And could you speak a little bit, for instance, to this, well, you've, you've already spoken about the musical angle, but friendships that are made in, in struggle. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that in order to understand big historical events and developments and dynamics, you need to understand human beings because those, those are the entities that, that make history and engage with, with the big events. And in writing my book, I, I consciously try to do this by telling the story of South Africa's transition from liberation struggle to democratic governance through my own experience of it, and to some extent the experience of, of my comrades and colleagues along the way. Um, and for me, that, that's a crucial part, because the, the, the friendships, the, uh, the camaraderie, the shared uh, uh, deprivations, and the shared celebrations uh, are all a critical part of, of what makes history and what makes people do what they do, make the sacrifices that they make, uh, and, and so on. So for me, can't understand history unless you understand people and how they interact with, with history. And in the book you recount uh, your working relations, your friendship with a wide range of figures who later moved into government, people involved in ANC, uh, MK, politics, uh, what are some of the highlights to, to tell the listeners uh, about this, this narrative which you've so splendidly written down? What are the things that leap to your mind now about, about this period of your life in exile? Well, I think there, there may be four main segments, if I can break my life up in that way. Um, the one was the period in London where I, I interacted with a lot of people who were, were then or later became leaders of the ANC and leaders of the democratic government, where we interacted with the solidarity and anti-apartheid movements in, in the UK, in Western Europe and elsewhere. Um, 
that that sense of common purpose of hatred of apartheid that we shared, I think, was was the the one big uh, memorable segment. The other was my time in MK in Angola, which I've already spoken to. The other interesting moment was my time in Moscow. Um, very interesting place to be at that time. Uh, very strange for me because I underwent my training alone for various reasons which I explained in the book. I was all alone in Moscow for seven months uh, in, a, in a somewhat strange but very interesting place. Um, and then the, f the last segment would, would have been my time in the underground in Botswana, very difficult, constantly uh, being pursued by the apartheid regime security forces in one way or another, always the threat of, of being assassinated. But a vibrant interaction with people at home in South Africa and constant uh, engagement with the, with the struggle at home. So those are some of the highlights. The second half of the book is fascinating when you uh, start to tell the stories of how the resistance movements have to make this difficult, complicated transition to uh, a democratic dispensation and for uh, ANC cadres in particular, you know, occupying very, very important, influential positions in government. And, and you were very much part of this process, of course. I liked it because it was a very uh, insightful, insider's perspective on this larger change from resistance to governance. And, and I liked how you exposed the complications, the temptations, both the successes and some of the, the failures how you reflected on the fine line between a, what I think you termed networking and co-option. Now, you were assigned to the South African Secret Service, and, you know, the world of intelligence is a, is a, is a difficult and complex one. A uh, murky you, one. <laughs> a murky one. Thank you, Peter. Uh, you call it a branch of the knowledge industry mm -hmm. in the book. But you also say, and I quote, the world of intelligence provided an arena to seek understanding of the forces that guided and hindered our progress through the struggle against apartheid and the efforts to construct a South Africa that provided a better life for all its inhabitants. Can you share with the listeners a few of the insights that you gained uh, in the years that you were a high-ranking official in the South African Secret Service? Well, that's a big question. Uh, we need about three hours for that answer, but I'll try and <laughs> squeeze it into the few minutes we have. The, the, the Secret Service is South Africa's foreign intelligence service, equivalent in function, but not in scope to your CIA, I suppose. Um, and in those early years of democracy, I think the, the main lesson we learned was the extent to which many countries, particularly the big Western countries, were attempting to influence openly and, uh, and clandestinely the direction of South Africa's both foreign and domestic policy. Uh, so the, the, the big challenge we had was to try and, and deal with these attempts to, to influence us um, and to keep a balanced approach to the world, which was the philosophy that, uh, with which we approached uh, our, our new democracy and our new foreign relations. So, um, but we also you know, faced what you might want to call more mundane challenges. Uh, transnational organized crime was a big one for us. Uh, I think most countries that have experienced new democracy coming out of an oppressive past 
find in the early years of democracy with the opening up of the economy and society and so on that uh, crime takes advantage, especially organized crime, of that sudden space. Uh, and that was one of the other big challenges uh, we faced. Our other major concern, given the, the nature of our transition and the nature of apartheid, uh, was the activities of the extreme right wing, particularly in South Africa, although the Secret Service focused more on, on their international links. So that was the other area of, of, of concern for us. We also, by the way, became a big target for espionage of many countries uh, who were interested in South Africa after the end of apartheid, saw South Africa as a gateway into the rest of Africa. Uh, and we, the presence of foreign intelligence personnel in South Africa uh, increased multifold after 94. So that was another big concern. What about the temptations that you uh, refer to in this in this section? The difficulty of revolutionaries who have had to put down their their arms and and make a transition to to being public servants, if you will, and and how objectively difficult this was, and perhaps why, and um, how this maybe has shaped the, the ability, the capacity of the South African government to deal with the many deep legacies of apartheid. The point I've tried to make in the book is that we came under, as you, as you noted, uh, a lot of pressure domestically and internationally to, to direct the new South Africa in a particular direction, free market, uh, liberal, open economy, let the rich get richer and the poor will catch up one day kind of approach to our, our transition. Um, and the that pressure took many forms, and one of them, as you referred to, what I call the, the, the line between networking co-option, is that the, the private sector, the South African private sector, worked hard to persuade us uh, of the values of, of the free market and to, put it simply, to buy us off, not necessarily by direct bribes in all cases, but, but by buying us off. I tell anecdotes in the book about buying my first house and my first car and suddenly finding myself in debt that I'd never been in because I started my financial life in my 40s when I came back from exile. So all these factors, and you can imagine people that had been, I mean, I was a white South African, so I had a relatively privileged background, but people who came out of apartheid, came out of exile, came out of prison, or came out of the shackles of apartheid, exploitation and, and racism, suddenly finding themselves free to make money, free to take whatever jobs they could, free to start businesses. The temptations were, were immense, and this had a direct impact on our ability to transform the country. Um, also, we had to build the new administration on, on the foundations of the old. We didn't you know, take the old apartheid uh, bureaucrats against the wall and shoot them and start again. We worked with them. It was part of the negotiated agreement. And they didn't have the same ideas about where South Africa should go, where the economy should go, what our foreign policy should be, and so on. So those were some of the challenges, briefly, that we faced. On these, uh, a related point, really, to these issues of, of, of politics and corruption was uh, the development of divisions in the, in the liberation movement in, in the ANC. 
and you served under the administrations of both Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki, and then on the horizon was a deep rift that was developing between Mbeki and Jacob Zuma. And uh, in the book, uh, you weave into it the, uh, very interestingly, I think, uh, reflections on the uh, causes or the multiple causes of these, the interaction between the changing uh, global power situation, the onset of globalization in, as it affects South Africa, and uh, also uh, ponder things like, you know, was it a question of personal enmity? Was the broad church that the ANC um, was, was it starting to break up? Or, or did the roots lie in this global dynamic that allowed South Africa its freedom at the very time as the Cold War came to an end? Sitting back now, uh, a few years later, uh, how would you really answer that question? I mean, today we uh, divisions in the ANC are certainly still apparent. There's an election looming. Uh, what is driving uh, what is driving these rifts today in South Africa? You know, I think there are there are many reasons. Uh, as I do say in the book, as you've just said, there was the personal enmity, and who was who can be sure where that came from. There's lots of theories and people who knew Zuma and Mbeki together at different times have different explanations. Um, I am interested in the extent to which those divisions were encouraged uh, by those who saw the, the, the continued unity of the ANC as a, th as a, a threat or a concern. Um, the ANC has been through decades a very progressive uh, movement, uh, sought progressive uh, change to South Africa and particularly to the economy, more equitable distribution of the, of the wealth and resources of South Africa. And many people domestically and uh, globally saw this as a threat. Now, I'm not blaming ANC problems simplistically on outside forces, but I do think that not enough has been studied or researched or said about the extent that these interests uh, played a role in encouraging divisions. Because certainly in my time in intelligence, I saw lots of strange, inexplicable things that, uh, that were going on, which unfortunately I can't talk about on air. Um, but that, that's my concern, and I think there are other factors, the other more sort of uh, deep, economic, political, social factors which have helped to uh, aggravate those divisions, um, disagreements about the direction that the economy should take, and so on. But uh, the divisions between the division between Zuma and Beki, when one looks at it and one experienced at the time, were not based on any clear policy differences. We won't press you to reveal any more secrets than you already have in the book. And uh, but after finishing with intelligence, with the intelligence community or the spooks, as they're sometimes known, uh, in about 2007, I think you you later moved into uh, think tanks, and you you spoke just then about the ANC's uh, prior engagement with various progressive causes and ideas. Gender uh, equality was another one that they took up quite early. And um, in 2010, you co-founded the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection, a progressive policy think tank, where you remain uh, 
associated with that. I wonder if you could speak to this question of think tanks and uh, progressive thought, because here in the US there is a great multitude of think tanks for every possible political persuasion. But I expect in South Africa it's a rather different kettle of fish. Yeah, at the, at the time, uh, around 2010, 2009-2010, we thought South Africa had come to a point where there needed to be a little bit of sitting back and thinking strategically and long-term about the challenges the country faced. Our heads, those of us who'd been in government in particular, and policymakers ourselves, our heads were kind of buried in the, the, the murk of day-to-day -day running of the country, if I can put it that way. And although we did some, obviously, policy thinking and analysis, we were very much tied to, to the, the term-by-term uh, timescale of different administrations, election to election. So we thought we could use our experience of, of government and its challenges to step back and take a long-term look, but also to do it, as you correctly said, from a progressive point of view, because most of the research institutes and, and civil society type think tanks in South Africa are, are more conservative and have their roots uh, to some extent in the apartheid uh, past. And there's not really been a think tank like the Mapungubo Institute, which is grounded in the same broad philosophy that informed the, the struggle against apartheid, the struggle against racism, the struggle against sexism, and, and so on. The website for the Mapungubo Institute is mistra.org. ZA, or as the South Africans like to say, ZA. You can learn more about uh, the mission of Mapungubwe and the research projects underway and the staff and the opportunities available there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Barry Gilder, for talking to Africa Past and Present. It's been a delight to uh, not only engage in conversation, but to listen to your musical talent as well. Thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>